Hi, everyone. It is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. This is Overtime. I'm your host, Chris Vecchio, head of Futures and Forks, here at Tasty Live, joined, of course, by my co-host, Mr. Ilya Spivak, head of Global Macro. Ilya, how are you on this Thursday? Getting ready for what will be fireworks tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, a little bit of a lull, it looks like, for most markets today. Um, it's raining here in San Francisco, so uh, a great time to sit around and uh, have a coffee and think about the madness that awaits. Uh, quiet in some markets, but not equities today. Equities had a really bad second half of the session. When we were on Futures Power Hour earlier at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central Time, Monday through Friday here on Tasty Live, we were looking at the S&P at 39.80. 39.20 right now in the market. 39.15, excuse me, now in the market as I get yeah, yeah, yeah. closer look at those quotes. Uh, that's a 1.99% drop here on the session. NASDAQ off 1.86%, 12,001. YM 1.76% lower, 32,235. And the Russell down 2.91%, So on Futures Power Hour, Ilya, we were saying, you know, hey, you know, it, it feels like kind of a, another one of those weird days like we had earlier this week. Mm -hmm. the three of the four major indices are kind of just treading water. The NASDAQ's in positive territory. The, the, the S&P's slightly underwater. The Dow Jones slightly underwater. But here's the Russell again, off by 1.39%. What's the deal there? Is that a... Is that another canary in the coal mine? Sure enough, here we are down 2% across the board. And it's coming on the heels of, rather, ahead of this non-farm payrolls report. A non-farm payrolls report that kicks off a macro storm, CPI on Tuesday, the Fed the following Wednesday. Ilya, what happened here in the second half of today's session? It's a good question because uh, I'm kind of scratching my head also. I'm looking at this and and, and seeing, for example, a lot of the measures of um, risk-on, risk-off dynamics that um, we normally look at being a bit um, a bit inconsistent. So we have um, the NASDAQ to Dow ratio a little bit, uh, I mean, a little bit down, but very narrowly, basically flat on the day. Uh, the performance from the U.S. dollar, very inconsistent. Uh, gold prices up, which wouldn't be the kind of thing that we've seen recently. So um, it's very interesting to see what's going on here. Crude oil is down. It's down a bit, not anything out of its normal range um, no. for, for the past, I don't know, call it three months, four. Um, so at this point, um, it's a really interesting thing that's going on here, and it seems mostly growth related because the my canary in the coal mine here um, is dollar yen. So the um, the yen exchange rate that tends to be something that moves with yields, and it's down today. And this risk dollar, aversion, yen, dollar yen is down six J is up. For that's, that's correct. For those at home. Yeah. That's correct. So the yen is up, um, and the dollar is down. And so what? Um, that tells me is there is a yield story here. There is a risk aversion story here. Sure. The, the kind of risk aversion that we've been talking about has begun with yields because a lot of it has been um, activated by speculation that the Fed is going to go uh, longer, that it's going to hold rates higher, uh, and that has uh, caught markets uh, offsides. I'm a bit surprised that it's caught them as offsides as it has. I don't think Jay Powell said anything that was so out of bounds th th this week, but clearly the markets didn't like it. And so 
that's been the catalyst. In that environment, the yen has weakened because they've not raised interest rates, marching uh, higher yields are no good for the appeal of one of the few major currencies, possibly the only major currency uh, at this point that hasn't seen meaningful tightening come on the menu uh, in the past year and a half or two. And, um, and so that's been a bit different. This today looks more like risk aversion classic where Risk you get classic indeed where the yen is strong because yields are down because the appeal of a currency that yields nothing is relatively higher when everything else closes in on it to some extent so uh it's an interesting thing it it feels like growth concerns here it does feel like growth concerns, more growth than interest rate concerns, because as you point out, yields are lower on the session across the curve. Uh, halfway through today's day, we were basically teetering, where ZB was just dipping its toes back into positive territory. But here at the close, everything is up across the board, ZT, ZN, ZB. Some nice gains here. Uh, not to say that we're out of inversion territory. The inversion in the Treasury yield curve relents slightly today, 96 and a half basis points still. I guess that's 10 basis points in from where we were at our highs earlier this week. But the broader point is that it's yields that are really the big what's going on in this market. And I say that because we are on the precipice of this non-farm payrolls report that for all intents and purposes, looks like it still could come in hot. ADP mm -hmm. came in above expectations. The PMI subcomponents for employment were still fairly elevated, at least on the services side of things. Yep. Not only have that risk there, you also have the risk of, of wage growth coming in a little bit hotter than what we've been seeing in recent months. The forecast is for 4.7% against the prior 4.4. And you sprinkle that into a mix where you already have the Mannheim used car price index going up. You have gas prices, uh, gas futures having increased. They just hit their yearly high earlier this week before backing off. You have signs of inflation beginning to not turn higher, but the path lower isn't go isn't going to be as as quick, right? We're not going to see a 0% month over month this month or next month. Uh, but what you have happening in yields here seems like a different story. The start of February, Ilya, yields and gold were the first ones to go. They kind of went in tandem. February 2nd comes around, gold absolutely crushed, bearish outside engulfing bar, yields start to perk up. We have the non-from payrolls report for the month of January on February 3rd that confirms the breakout. Powell doesn't do anything on February 7th, the following Tuesday, to shake anyone's perception of what's just happened. And the markets begin this jaunt. Dollar strengthens. Yields are going up. Even though stocks are down today, stocks weren't down initially with bond yields moving higher and gold moving lower at the beginning of February. And I guess my point is, yeah, today's really ugly. Maybe some of it has to do with SVIB. We'll talk about Silicon Valley Bank in a little bit and what that did for the entire banking sector today. That's part of the reason why this market is so much weaker. And Ilya, you and I can have a discussion about the ghosts of the global financial crisis, quite frankly, yeah. because that's really what today felt about. Yes. Um, yes. In the second half of the session felt more like this idiosyncratic risk with SVIB and then potentially what this means for regional banks and uh, less capitalized banks in the country 
than the first half, which really felt more about NFPs. And I say that because you go through the morning and you get initial jobless claims that are coming in a little bit higher than anticipated. Continuing claims are higher than anticipated by about 500,000 jobs. Challenger job cuts, 77.77 thousand. That plus what we saw in January of about 102, that's the biggest January, February, two-month job cuts since January, February of 2009. So the labor market pumps out kind of this confusing information this morning. And that's why when you took a look at the market here, right around 12 o'clock Eastern time, you have an S&P that's 39.94,000. It's only once the market really begins to hone in on SVIB and the collapse of this Web3 crypto bank that this liquidity contagion oh my goodness, what has the Fed done type of attitude in the market begin to take hold? Well, let's be a little bit nicer to SVB uh, than than a Web3 crypto uh, bank. I have some good friends that and I mean, out, here in, uh, out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and just to put a correction, it's, it's SVB Financial, but it's SIVB as the stock ticker. That's right. Um, so yeah. SVB... SVB is uh, a bank that's been out here for quite a while. It's been um, the the tech company's bank, I mean, going back before the dot-com bust. Um, it's been around for a long, uh, for a long, long time. Um, and it's, um, it's a really interesting story. Um, yeah, founded in 1983. Lots, it's yeah, been around lots, since lots yeah, lots of tech and wineries uh, for um, SVB, um, and and um, the the interesting thing is, of course, the larger story. Exactly what what you and I have been talking about. That when you have this much tightening happen after so long a period at zero rates, there will be pockets of malinvestment all over the place, and. Some of them might withstand a rate squeeze like this, but some of them won't. And where they are is unclear. And uh, the story of SVB, uh, I'm just kind of seeing it b break out today, but it's a story of, of, of contagion, of uh, this idea as we were talking about FTX some months ago and saying, well, is it possible that the shakeout in crypto and uh, the kind of weak hands we've seen squeezed out there, um, the FTX debacle, could that be it? Could that be the extent of what higher rates mean? And my argument at the time was almost certainly not, because as you squeeze and squeeze, and of course, monetary policy we know has long and variable lags, to use the cliche yet again. Um, and so it takes time for the squeeze to be applied, months and months and quarters. Uh, so it's difficult to say where the end is. But the knock-on effect starts to be all of those traditional players, like an SVB that over the years gain exposure to these highly interest rate sensitive things. And there's a whole lot of them. But isn't, isn't SVB more of a story? And we'll pull up their stock chart here so we can see this on, on the screen. Uh, really brutal price action today, yep. down by 60.4% uh, over the course of today's session. Uh, 
share price is about $106.04. It's a loss of $161.79 from yesterday's close. Isn't this just a story about uh, a, a niche financial institution that operates within a very certain slice of the tech sector that is caught on the wrong end of what you just elaborated, an interest rate hike regime mm -hmm. slash unprofitability cycle in startups altogether. I mean, that, that's what's so confusing, I guess, or at least, you know, I, I don't wanna say paradoxical. Uh, that's what's so curious about today's move in something like KRE, the regional bank ETF. It was off mm -hmm. by 8.11%, yeah. right? Like, what does, a San Francisco area, I think Santa Clara. What Santa is a Clara. Santa Clara bank that lends to mostly West Coast tech startups have to do with the health of other regional banks that lend to mostly local businesses? And I don't know if the answer is pretty, it just seems like this is a haunting of a previous financial crisis that SIVB is not like a, a key or a PNC going through this issue. PNC mm -hmm. Bank is going through this issue. I have a lot more concerns about the state of sure. the U.S. economy than I do of SIVB, sure. which is, you know, it, it's a reflection of what's happened in the tech sector already. That's right. That's right. right? We, 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 we've seen this play. We've seen it in the NASDAQ. We've seen the layoffs. This is a new information. This is the bill coming due and people saying, OK, well, we've counted our chips based on what's happened the last few months. So we're going to have to take these write downs and this and that and the other thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I say like, yeah, it was coming, of course. Was I short it? No. So maybe it wasn't so obvious <laughs> ahead of time. <laughs> and, it, and if it was, if something like this is so obvious ahead of time, why wasn't I shorting it? So we can have that conversation uh, elsewhere. But I, I guess the thing is, why is anyone surprised that there are still issues rolling through here? More importantly, why does anyone think that this is a corollary for the rest of the U.S. banking system? I can answer that in, uh, in an analogy. What does Countrywide have to do with AIG or, for that matter, Munich Re? Not a whole lot until it, until it does. Right. So the notion here isn't that SVIB personally is going to infect the financial system. The idea is that when risk begins to be unwound, it moves sequentially from the furthest out along the risk curve, the riskiest things. And of course, we've already seen crypto eat it. We were starting to, to see more established names follow. So, so there is a sequencing here where as you move in and the squeeze continues and money becomes more and more expensive and people say, well, okay, money's expensive, so if I lose it, it'll be more expensive to get back. It'll be more expensive to come and roll the dice again. It'll be more expensive to reinvest into something else. I'm going to try to keep as much of my money as possible, but also I'm going to try to allocate it to places where I'm less likely to lose it because it'll be expensive to borrow back and because those safer areas now offer compelling returns in their own right. So as I look at this as an investor, I say, okay, tightening continues. 
movement inward along the risks spectrum away from riskier and toward safer continues and it's moving closer and closer inward toward traditional finance and where that creep stops who's to say but when you go from ftx clearly a fraud um into uh something like svb which is a completely legitimate financial institution doing great business for decades but which happens to be in a sector that is now in pain uh, and which is anchored to a sector that's vulnerable in an interest rate environment like this the natural question becomes how long before it's jp morgan let's say how long b before it's some of these other lenders elsewhere and so you start looking at smaller banks that are less capitalized when something like this happens and go, okay, SVB was anchored to tech. What were some of these other less capitalized banks anchored into? And where is that going to uh, is that going to sting? Uh, certainly, uh, lending uh, into, let's say, fracking operations in Texas. That could be that could be a place to look, not because I know there's an issue there. I have no idea if there's an issue there. But these regional banks are less capitalized than the large ones that, for the most part, got a whole lot of talking to after the 08 crisis and have uh, capitalized more significantly. But there is an entire shadow lending system out there, non-bank lending system or non-major bank lending system and the natural question becomes as the liquidation creeps inward how deep is it going to go and 08 taught us it can go to a reinsurance company in munich i guess i guess to answer your question that you started things off with was how do we get from countrywide to AIG? That's kind of the line that I'm trying to draw through this year, right? Because countrywide under uh, CEO Angelo Mazzillo at the time mm -hmm. is just originating all sorts of mortgages throughout the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And when you hear about like okay. the ninja yeah. loans, this is the guy like you're thinking of. And, and basically the quality of these mortgages is absolute crap. But allegedly, that's not allegedly true. Countrywide represented them. And so Countrywide then, you know, sells them off when they're bundled and securitized and then they're sold to other investors. And one of those investors is AIG. So Countrywide effectively originates all these bad mortgages, lies about the quality of the, the, the debt. Uh, AIG purchases it. And so when the debt actually goes belly up because, hey, it's actually not as good. It's not AAA rated. It's probably more like BB rated, right? You know, AIG then is caught holding the bag. Hey, we purchased something that isn't worth what we thought it was. And so now they have this impaired asset, mortgage back securities go bust, AIG is on the hook, taxpayers bail them out. So I, I can draw the line from countrywide to AIG. It was part of a systemic problem. I'm having trouble drawing a line from SIVB over to KRE, right? These are... Countrywide and, and AIG played in the same pool. They may have swim in different parts of the pool, given their levels of operation in the ecosystem, right? They were on different ends of, of this chain of transactions. Mm -hmm. But where are 
SIVB's clients and potentially you know, they take money in, they take deposits in, right? They then lend it out. Sometimes they do start, a lot of these startups are not profitable, so they're not getting the money back, right? How many of those people that have money deposited with SIVB or have invested money into SIVB are the type of people that also own or invest in or have business with smaller banks in like the Midwest? And I guess that's I guess why I'm saying this seems like an overreaction today because these feel like uniquely ring-fenced problems. Like SIVB having an issue is equivalent to FTX's impact on the broader broker industry in the United States. It is not a reflection of the health of the brokerage industry in the United States. It is the reflection of a very specific set of actors. In, this, in SIVB's case, nothing nothing like malfeasance or nothing felonious like what uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has done. But yep, FTX that's right. and, and, their, and their situation is not a re representative sample of what's going on. Just like SIVB is not a representative sample, it's very specific to the characteristics of the type of institution that it itself is. And you may say, okay, well, that's why it was down 60% today and regional banks were only down eight. Right. I mean, it's, I don't think it's, I don't think the argument that I'm making here has um, to do with saying that SIVB specifically can poison the financial s system. Rather, that which is hurting the financial system is hurting actors in it at a graduated level of significance, size, okay. and um, and integration. And what we see is movement along that curve, right? First, we start to hit the frauds. This happened with Madoff, right? Madoff was unearthed by the financial crisis because the losses simply could not be masked anymore. They were too great. So you have this... And, and, and by the way, this happens all the time. Every single time that you have a major financial shakeout, the bad actors are shaken out. This is, um, this is, this is as, as old as time itself. Uh, if you want to read uh, the, uh, the history of financial crises from Dalio, uh, if you want to read uh, Mastering the Market Cycle from Howard Marks, any kind of deep dive into the history of financial crises, uh, the history of credit cycles, will tell you a story about things beginning quite positively, things getting out of hand, things crashing, and then bad actors being exposed that could not be exposed when their malfeasance was papered over by a generally positive economic environment and loose credit. So what we're talking about here is a kind of graduated movement inward along the risk curve where yesterday it was FTX, today it's SVB. Who is it tomorrow? Not necessarily that SVB will cause tomorrow, but who is it tomorrow as you move inward and the squeeze continues? And how long before you get into a place where it's somebody that is large and that does have significant tentacles elsewhere in the financial system. So I think it matters less episodically and more as a case in point. 
Sure. And, and this just goes to show, that at least for the, the crypto Web3 industry right now, there are still very long shadows that are reaching out and impacting the market. Yeah. You know, you look at crypto prices recently, they've certainly rebounded. There's no doubt about that. Today's not been a good day for Bitcoin down 6%. No. But, no. but but over the past several months, 2023 at least, has <clears throat> been better in the wake of the FTX debacle, which was the first week of, or I guess suppose the second week of November last year. Uh, Nothing really bad has happened the past few months. And yet now this thing with SIVB is coming out and SIVB is the exact type of more traditional financial institution mm -hmm. that would play in the crypto space. And they now are dealing with some of the ramifications of the fallout and everyone in that ecosystem is still dealing with the ramifications. Yeah. So while lots of people are still saying it's a good time to keep your head down and build, well, first off, it's always a good time to build. It's, doesn't matter if it's sunny or rainy, you always build for a better tomorrow. Uh, secondly, if it's if it's a great time to build, how come things like this are still happening even though there are no crypto specific things blowing up right now? Uh, and it's because there is there is a long shadow uh, over these actions. And this is uh, that monetary policy transmission channel at work, as you've correctly pointed out. It takes a long time for these effects to work their way through the system. That may mean there are other institutions like SIVB yes. that have right. similar loan profiles and durations of assets and liabilities uh, and, and, and particular clientele that they lend out to. You know, if I'm a day like today, I don't have a list in front of me, but I can bet within the banking system, uh, banks that have more exposure to the tech sector performed worse than those that didn't. Like a small publicly traded regional bank in the Northeast did not do as poorly as anything connected to Silicon Valley on a day like today. But that also means that this may be a an opportunity. Well, and by XLF, the way, <laughs> right? Like yeah. XLF and a KRE, it yeah, yeah. seems irrational. We and 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 let's consider, right? What does technology enable? Right, like yes, these tech companies exist in many ways. Uh, right around the corner from where I am, right, I, I'm here in San Francisco. Uh, this has been the epicenter of all of this for 20, 30 years. Uh, just in this current crop of the of the story. I mean, we can go back to Bell Labs, uh, and it's been much longer. Uh, but. Consider the next time you open Instagram and you see an ad for the drop shipper of whatever type of uh, clothing you happen to have Googled uh, at some point, maybe, right? All of a sudden, you'll have 90 million ads there. How are those drop shippers enabled to stay in business? Who finances them? They don't have a physical store. But they might be based in Colorado. They might be based in Texas. They might be based elsewhere. What powers that ecosystem? What lending? It's not necessarily anything that's that's based in Silicon Valley, but it's the existence of the tools that enabled an entire, I mean, decades worth of growth in things like this, and. Who, who's to say what pockets uh, are available when those higher interest rates squeeze incomes and there's less spending on, on things like this uh, and you get these kinds of regional 
banks, which are not as well capitalized as, you know, the, your JP Morgans of the world um, and your city banks of the world, what happens there? So I think I think it's a completely rational thing to say this represents the pain being extended to a certain size of institution. How much more pain is there in similar sized ins institutions? What other pockets of lending are going to be interest rate sensitive? And by the way, spoiler alert, every kind of spending is interest rate sensitive because we're talking about the cost of money and therefore the quintessential impetus to any kind of spending on anything. Uh, when we look at the sector performance today, Ilya, naturally the banks are at the center of the storm. KRE, the regional banking ETF, down 8.11%. KBE, the bank ETF, down 7.28%. Otherwise, oil slips a little bit. OIH, 4.76% lower. XLF, financials broadly, 4.06% lower. Uh, metals, materials, oil and gas exploration down between 2.58 and 2.46% respectively. So just across the board, it's bad here, but you have some very specific occurrences, right? This SIVB thing resonating throughout the financial sector, pulling everything down. Nothing positive on the day. Gold miners, junior gold miners are the top two performers, and they lost 0.48 and 0.28% on the day. So overall, not a good day for stocks. Uh, perhaps the tell was what was going on with the Russell midday through the session lagging again, like we saw earlier this week. We had that weird day earlier this week when you know, the Dow Jones, the, the NASDAQ, the S&P were up about 0.1%, but then the Russell was down 1.4%. That was Monday. And then, of course, Tuesday came in with that big smackdown across the board. S&P ultimately lost its uptrend here uh, uh, from the October 2022, January 2023 swing lows. But now we find ourselves back at another important technical crossroads because mm -hmm. we can look at this one of two ways, right? The range that was carved out at the end of December into the beginning of January, ultimately, you know, that proved to be support against the turn in the middle of January. It may have been support here at the start of March. We're doing another retest here right now. And this is what we talked about previously, where once you get below 3,900, there's really nothing by way of support in the S&P until about 3,780, 3,800. It becomes a pretty quick trip to the downside. The NASDAQ here, and well, actually, let's just stick with this for one more quick second. The other thing that's going on here in the S&P 500 today, it's a break of that 200-day moving average. We yes. tried to do that on March 2nd. We failed. That ultimately helped spark the run up higher. But now we have a move below the 200 day. We have a move below the monthly low. That's the that's now, the one that's got me excited is the move below the monthly low. Right. And and now all of a sudden the retest of and we, you know, we're starting to lose all these key support levels. Uh, highs from January, March, August 2020, 22. That's this blue trend line cutting across the screen from top left to mid right here. That trend line, which capped us in November and December, and again here midway through January, only to become support, that's at 38.85. So, like I said, right, you get down below 3,900 or so. This is a market without really much to hang on to. Momentum is increasingly ugly. Uh, the fundamental narrative isn't great. Maybe the yield story is what people pay attention to. You know, if yields don't go up tomorrow after non-farm payrolls, maybe that opens the window for equity market bulls to come back in. But this is this is not a pretty chart. This is not a no. chart I like to look at if I'm a bull. No, and 
let's just give ourselves a, a little bit of a pat on the back here when we looked at that shooting star three days ago on the retest of the underside of that uh, that range, and we said, ah, that's worrying. That's not a good candle. Uh, and um, this is really the kind of technical analysis that I love the the most the kind that doesn't rely on indicators the kind that doesn't look at some sort of derivative of the price action but looks at the price action itself um needless to say japanese candlestick analysis too is an ancient ancient art uh and uh, really captures i think very well the collective emotions of the market that shooting star candle was exactly what you would expect a shooting star candle to do. It, it, it not only proved that, right? You have the evening star candlestick cluster that comes together. Technically not, because it's not the top of a trend, but it's still a three candlestick pattern that pointed to more downside today. Uh, you do get a new high relative to yesterday, a move below yesterday's low yes. and close below yesterday's low. So that's technically a bearish outside engulfing bar pointing to more imminent downside. This is not a market that I like to look at. It's not something that I like looking at if I'm on the long side right now. Neither is the NASDAQ here, Ilya. And I say that because when we take a look at our NASDAQ, we haven't broken down through our 200-day yet, but it feels imminent insofar as we have a bearish outside engulfing bar on the daily today. Yes. We're pressing up against that 200 tomorrow really matters for the payrolls report. And this is why the NASDAQ could play a little bit of catch up because tomorrow is probably gonna be a day where interest rates are moving a little bit more one way or the other. Um, and <laughs> yeah. ultimately- Maybe a little oh, bit. <laughs> yeah, right, and, and that's, that's the story of today. Today is more about like the regional banks and weighing down the Russell and then this contagion concern, the ghost of 2007, 2008 coming back to us um, in today's session interest rates did come off though and that may be part of the reason why uh, the, the nasdaq was cushioned here against a much steeper pullback right uh in a world where the two-year yield is coming down where the 10-year yield is coming down where <clears throat> the 30-year yield is coming down then the nasdaq should theoretically not underperform and it did right. it outperformed today it did relatively that's right. well <clears throat> that's right that's exactly right and that's an interesting part of this story. So let's say we get an NFP number that's a bit soft. I mean, I know there's um, there's there's ample reason, and, and, and we'll talk about this on macro money, there's ample reason to think that actually we're gonna register fairly firm. Um, the indications from ISM suggest that, um, as you pointed out, uh, I, and I couldn't agree more, ADP is kind of a nutty indicator. Um, it it works about as many times as it doesn't. Um, and, and for what it's worth, I think the past six months in a row, ADP has come in underneath non-firm payrolls. It's been that's right. Frequent, frequently light, and ADP just beat expectations this week at 242k versus 200 expected. That's right. That's right. Um, I just don't put a lot of stock in ADP's numbers in general, not because they're not rigorous numbers, but because their relationship with NFP numbers can be all over the place. Uh, it can go through spells of being under, it can go through spells of being over, it can go through spells of being completely uh, somewhere else. It, sorry, so, Rector, is, isn't that incredible? Doesn't it feel like it's gotten less accurate since they did the methodology revision? Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. And the other strange thing that ADP does is it uses the NFP outcome, which comes after, to 
revise their historical data. So you don't really get a clean, here's how ADP evolves relative to NFP over time because there's a feedback loop. Now, maybe they've abandoned this pr practice and my understanding of, of it is dated. Uh, it could it could be, uh, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a wacky thing um, when you try to use it to um, to look to NFP. But in the in the world of uh, of of possibility, there is the possibility that we get a soft NFP number, even with all of these indications, because they all come from different sort of data collection methodologies. ADP um, is ultimately a giant payments processor and their numbers come from physical work that they do um, when you look at nfp that's a survey that's extrapolated uh, when you look at uh, ism that's a survey of very different people that's also extrapolated so you could have inconsistencies here that just boil down to data collection. So when you look at um, the possibility that you get an NFP tomorrow that let's say comes in light or comes in broadly in line with expectations, I think after February, a lot of people are kind of dialed up for a big beat uh, or at least the risk of one. Let's say you avert that risk and you get a number that's broadly in line or even a bit softish is anybody really going to say oh the fed is um the fed is going to ease off here on the strength of this i doubt it maybe you get a day of relief two days of relief but then you're right back to cpi and uh i've i've sort of endlessly harped on this uh just even in the past week because looking at the reaction to what Powell said, um, we've talked about this with Nick Batista on the show yesterday, it was a really dramatic reaction, and Powell didn't say so much anything that wasn't readily observed. You could see clearly in February, U.S. economic data was doing better than expected. The response to that was a rise in near-term break-even rates. So the market is very clearly telling you the amount of tightening that's priced in is not enough to put inflation at 2% in two years' time. What exactly was Powell going to say? He only had but the one thing he could. Unless you want to change your inflation target, and you're which within never, your forecast window at three. <laughs> they're never changing their inflation target. At least exactly, not so Exactly. They're not. It took, it, took, it took eight years for them to go. First off, they only adopted a 2% inflation target formally yes. under Bernanke. They again go eight years from 2012 up into 2020 when then they moved to average inflation targeting. So at a minimum, and because of the, the PR nightmare that was their response to inflation coming through the middle of the pandemic, calling it transitory, and it so clearly having not been in hindsight, there is no way the Fed this decade, in my opinion, can afford to revise its inflation target without there being a serious tax on its credibility by markets in a I very couldn't agree manner. More. I couldn't a, agree a, a more. Per, a permanent impairment of Fed credibility. I couldn't agree more. And 
finally adopting that inflation target, yet another of the great achievements of um, of Ben Bernanke. Call me a Fed <laughs> apologist if you like, but I maintain that the man needs a hero's bust in uh, his hometown of Augusta, Okay, but like 2%, 2% comes from the RBNZ in the late 90s. Yes. It's so arbitrary. It's not based on any, as people have admitted, it's not based on any significant rigorous studies. It's kind of just like, Two percent feels reasonable. Like if you if 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 I tell a business that we're gonna try to keep prices tethered around two percent increase each year, it's like okay, that's reasonable. I can plan for that. Yeah. A ten percent swing is too much. Five percent swing may be too much, but two percent that sounds reasonable. So let's go with that. Yeah, there's it's it's just based on so like why not? I, I get why people say like well why not? Why can't we feel like three percent is the good number now? So, well, like contextually, if you just said that your job is to bring inflation down to your target and now you're moving your goalpost, it seems like then you're not going to hit your first goalpost. So That's right. You can't, the Fed just can't do it right now. No, they, they, can't, they can't do it so close to the pandemic. Absolutely. And many central banks, by the way, take a range approach and increasingly so is the the U.S., uh, the RBA targets two to three. The ECB targets, well, used to target, they now finally have said that they're targeting 2%. But they used to say, we target close to, but under 2%. And there was um, a lot of controversy as to, well, what do they mean? 1.7, 1.8, What are they talking about? Um, for China, it's three. So it... It varies and it, and it evolves. And uh, under Jay Powell in the U.S., we've adopted a kind of average targeting that uh, basically doesn't really, I, I would argue, break new ground, but more so cements the kind of medium termness of the target that basically says we don't need to be permanently stuck at 2%. We need to be at a 2% average over the medium term which arguably has always been the Fed's objective. They just kind of codified it. Right. And, and that's what makes today's move across markets so fascinating because this is not about the Fed. I, no. I have up here GE, which is the euro dollar contract for uh, expiry in December 2023, basically looking at the difference in commercial borrowing costs over a fixed time horizon. In this case, where do commercial banks think that rates are going by the end of this year? Yep. It's very much like Fed funds futures. For those listening at home, you simply take the number that you see here uh, on the right y-axis and you subtract that from 100, and that gives you the implied Fed funds rate uh, as implied by borrowing costs from commercial banks. So at 94.375, you just take that from 100, you're basically looking at a 5.625, we'll call it 5.625 uh, Fed funds rate by the end of this year. That's lower than where we were yesterday. We basically closed the day at a five point, we can call it 5.8% Fed funds rate by the end of the year, right? There was that fear really coming into play that maybe 6% is in purview, but you have a significant step back today. Yep. You see it in the yield curve, you see it in ZT, you see it in ZN, you see it everywhere. And so while the first part of today's session was really about you know, what will NFP bring? What's up with this initial jobless claims figure? How does this comport with the PMIs that we've seen and 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 the jolts figures, right? And we're trying to construct this narrative and get our heads around what we should anticipate for tomorrow's non-farm payrolls report. It's it's really this idiosyncratic mess that's popping up, a symptom of 
the Fed's interest rate hikes, no doubt, a symptom of all the stimulus that came into the system, a misallocation of capital that led to a lot of bad bets that the chickens are now coming home to roost on, no doubt. This happens in every cycle. There are companies that get levered up way too much at the top, and then they suffer on the way to the bottom. And the companies that avoid those practices and avoid those decisions when the bottom falls out, they tend to come back down to earth a little bit more slowly, right? That's uh, right. Bonds, gold, dollar. Very different story than what happens in equity markets today. Very different indeed. Fed funds futures move lower. GC here does have a little bit of life to it. Yesterday was a pretty paltry attempt at a rebound. Today, a little bit better. Silver there as well. In fact, when we take it the look at the performance of gold and silver on this Thursday, gold's up 0.88%, silver up by 0.07. So still holds. If you're going to see precious metals rally, gold probably going to outperform silver in this environment, uh, an axiom that I think will still continue to hold for the foreseeable future. But gold here is up as well. So Ilya, as we look to wind down the last 10 minutes of, of overtime on this Thursday, really overtime this week. Yes. Answer this question for me. If at the start of February, gold and yields were correct, precious metals and yields are correct, telling us that equity markets and their inflated sense of well-being was wrong and that darker days were ahead. And indeed, as gold continued to fall, as yields continued to rally, it became more and more difficult for equity markets to hold up. And alas, here we are. Why is now the beginning of March different? If gold is up and yields are coming back in, perhaps, why would equity markets stay to the downside? Why wouldn't they just be late? Like they're the, they're the kid in the back of the classroom. No offense to any of them out there. I was the kid in the back because V is at the end of the alphabet. That's why I wear glasses, right? So I, I get being in the back of the classroom, right? But equity is always the last. Too. Right. But it's, I, I mean, it's in the sense that the kid in the back is the last one to get it, so to speak. Last one who's passed out the papers, maybe the last one to understand the information, however you want to view that terminology. But equities are always like the kid in the back. They're the last one who gets past the paper. They don't. They get the note last. And the note has been things aren't necessarily as as dire, as concerning as people appear. Because this was a true risk-off type of day. Yep. Dollar index wouldn't be down. That's right. That's right. And I think that's really the crux of this. This is not a, this is not risk aversion that starts with the Fed. This is risk aversion that starts with growth and financial stability. And so when you look at something like this and you say okay well yields are down gold is up this is not an environment where the market is worried that the Fed will do more and that will bring more pain. This is the more pain. This is the consequences. As, as as opposed to the catalyst. And so that's why equity markets don't like it. That's why yields are up or uh, into this, but now down with this, because we are into that part of the cycle, uh, to use the analogy of, um, and, and in fairness, this is one day, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We don't know of course. That, 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 that Lehman uh, part two is gonna happen tomorrow. But I think when markets look at this and they go, this is early 07. And the danger is 
that we're going to be at a Lehman moment in like a year's time. That kind of thing. And and so we're into the consequences part of this story. And if you get into the consequences part of this story, and this makes tomorrow's NFP number that much more reactive if this is where the market's mind is, if you're in that part of the story, then you start getting rate cut speculation build, build out because markets are going to look at this and go, well, the, the Fed has not a deceleration, not a soft landing, but maybe a credit crisis on its hands if this continues to creep. And if it does and there's contagion into the more traditional finance and more traditional pockets of the market, this is an area where the Fed is going to have to retreat. And it's something that's ultimately good for gold as long as speculation on easing is building, bad for yields, arguably still good for the U.S. dollar, though, as a haven and as a, and as a, a pocket of liquidity um, refuge. But there would be an adjustment there. The dollar would probably get weaker before it got stronger in that kind of an environment. I think the important thing to remember here is that we don't have evidence of that kind of consternation here, but it does seem closer now than it did yesterday, and it does, and it was probably closer yesterday than it was a year and a half ago. And so when you look at this and you consider how long these lags are, sometimes years between the start of a tightening cycle and the really explosive uh, area of that cycle's consequences, it's important to both consider that the Fed still has inflation it needs to fight, and that's primary fo focus for them, but also we are by no means out of the woods on some kind of a credit event. It could be a matter of time. And the one asset class that's almost uniformly vulnerable is equities. Ilya, on a day like today, we see that credit leaks to the downside, of course, JNK, HYG, not having, uh, you know, a cataclysmic end of world type of day that you see in financials, particularly the banking uh, ETFs. Mm -hmm. But overall, it's, 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 it's not good. I wouldn't say that we really have a decisive direction right now in equity markets. Um, uh, you know, earlier in, in today's session, when Jamal and I were speaking, I did say, like, if you, if you held a gun to my head and said, if we're going to have to test one of the, you know, the March high or March low first, which one is it going to be? I said, I think it's going to be the March low, mm -hmm. just because the, it seems like the path of least resistance right now, yields have spiked up, Fed high odds have spiked up, the dollar has gone higher. You have this narrative of the Fed potentially needing to do more. Anything that confirms that point of view, you, it's a tailwind. You're already sailing in that direction. Uh, whereas if it's something that is an affront to that narrative, all of a sudden the markets stop, there's repositioning, you get a little bit more volatility as the, the deck chairs are reshuffled on the ship, so to speak. Um, so I, I, stand, I stand by that right now. Like if I'm thinking about the symmetry of tomorrow's response, if it's a number that is picture perfect for the market, and that means jobs growth that's good, but not great, so a touch under the median, ex the, the average forecast would be wonderful. Like 190 would be 
fantastic, I think. Yep. Uh, wage growth of well below forecast of 4.7%. Like, give us 4.4, 4.5. Mark would be very happy with that. And an unemployment rate that ticks higher, right? If you get all three of those things, then you probably get a little bit of relief in this market. But I don't think we're erasing the losses that we've seen pile up over the past few days. I, I, I think this is a market that, you know, probably resets. You get a little bit of a bounce. I don't know if you get anything tremendous to the upside implied vols right now are looking at what like a less than a two percent move for the rest of this week so i don't know if you get a lot of upside there but if it's if it's bad if it's a 500k printing ad if it's five percent wages if it's a three and three percent unemployment rate you get something that's really off the radar outside of that bell curve of expectations well beyond the left or right tail uh, then that's really what can throw this market to the downside and people just go see we were right to think that 6% Fed funds rate is possible. This is this is what we were concerned about. It's That's a lot exactly easier right. to grasp for the confirmation bias than it is for the evidence that refutes the predominant point of view right now. And, and we saw that at the start of February, by the way, where it wasn't just the Fed meeting, it wasn't just the NFP report, it wasn't just Powell's comments with Rubenstein, it wasn't just the CPI. It was kind of everything that took to turn the narrative around it took a while and so tomorrow is not going to change the bearish narrative it can start the process of turning the ship like we had in this first part of february this may mean a lot of chopping sideways movement here the next few days but an outright rally moving up to new monthly highs over the next few days i i i would be very very surprised if we see that play out before non-farm pair uh, before the fed meeting even on the 22nd I couldn't agree more. I think the upshot here really is maybe you get a bit of relief out of NFP tomorrow. It is, as ever, a Friday release. So people might back off a little bit just because they don't want to uh, belabor a narrative uh, into the weekend closure. But regardless of what happens there, the upshot of the story remains the same. I would argue the upshot of the story has remained the same before the November, uh, mid-October rally started. And the corrective nature of that rally is something we've talked a lot about here and sort of the makeup of it. But that hasn't changed. So we're probably going to get some moving around it, but it's very difficult to sell me on the idea that all is well if the NFP number complies tomorrow. Ilya, uh, what are we talking about on macro money today after overtime ends? You'll be shocked to know it's the jobs report. Um, we're going to, I know, I know, left field. Um, we're we're going to take a look at um, sort of what brought us here, what the moving parts are, um, and talk about what the consequences will be for assets. Uh, because I think one of the most important considerations here, of course, is, okay, well, NFP number might do this or that. Make it actionable. What's it going to do? Uh, and, so, and so we'll talk about um, some scenario analysis as well.
For Macro Money, you can follow Ilya Mondays through Thursdays, 5.30 Eastern, 4.30 Central, 2.30 Pacific time here on Tasty Live. Of course, you can follow him here on Overtime every Monday through Thursday, 4.30 Eastern, 3.30 Central, 1.30 Pacific, alongside myself. He's on First Call on Sunday nights, 5.55 Eastern, 4.55 Central, 2.55 Pacific, with me on Futures Power Hour on Fridays now, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, 12 to 1 Central, 10 to 11 Pacific time. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Ilya Spivak. You can follow me on Twitter at CVECUFX with Ilya on Fridays and every Monday through Friday on Futures Power Hour, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, 12 to 1 Central. And of course, here on Overtime Tuesdays with Tom and Tony, 9.40 a.m. Eastern, 8.40 a.m. Central Time. That's Let Me Explain, where we delve into some of the popular topics in financial zeitgeist and break it all down for you. Of course, Overtime is now out of time. For Ilya Spivak, I've been Chris Vecchio. Good luck trading. Up next is Macro Money with Ilya Spivak. See you there, folks. The content of this podcast is created, produced, and provided solely by Tasty Life Inc. and does not represent the direct views or opinions of any of its affiliated companies. This content is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be trading or investment advice or a recommendation that any security, futures contract, digital asset, other product, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any person. Trading securities, futures products, and digital assets involve risk and may result in a loss greater than the original amount invested. Tasty Live Inc., through its content, financial programming, or otherwise, does not provide investment or financial advice or make investment recommendations. The information provided may not be appropriate for all investors and is provided without respect to individual investor financial sophistication, financial situation, investing time horizon, or risk tolerance. Tasty Live Inc. is not a licensed financial advisor, registered investment advisor, or registered broker-dealer.